0: Well, hello everybody. Welcome to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Pauly and hopefully tonight is a Maybe a difficult conversation, maybe a lot of information, heavy, but also uh, very uh, fun. I think it's a conversation that, well, at least I'm going to enjoy having. I hope you guys enjoy listening to it. Uh, joining me, actually, uh, we're going to be talking about Big Bang Cosmology, beginning of the universe theories. Is the universe eternal? Did it have a beginning? What implications does that have for a creator? And to do that, uh, we're going to be discussing a newer book that came out not too long ago, as we see here called escaping the beginning it is by dr jeff zwirink uh, confronting challenges to the universe's origins and so dr jeff zwirink has joined me he is a research scientist and scholar from reasons to believe uh, he also has uh, he has his phd in let me make sure I get this right in astrophysics from Iowa State University uh, he's written books like is there life out there which is a great book on extraterrestrials and aliens also who's afraid of the multiverse we'll talk about that a little bit here in the show and then also he's a project scientist at UCLA so Dr. swearing thank you so much for joining me Hi right, Ryan looking forward to our conversation today absolutely and this is uh, your second time uh, coming on I think right I think this is your second time in the and show.
1: I- I know I've talked to you quite a bit, and so I, th- I think that is the second show.
0: Oh yeah, Jeff has has come to my my school and done uh, career fair. <laughs> where uh, I man, I know the students love that. As you 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 made some stuff blow up in the classroom as you show different uh, kind of. I don't know, I guess what it'd be, the different um, ways in which chemicals react and trying to show what you do when it comes to astronomy and physics, as well as uh, ran into you a lot of different conferences. Last time, I think you talked about Big Bang uh, and evangelism, how we can use the Big Bang to evangelize, as well as science and faith on how they fit together. And that's really something that you are passionate about. So can you really share with those who don't really know maybe you or reasons to believe, uh, why are you passionate about this intersection of science and faith?
1: Well, it it kind of boils down to there are a lot of people who think science and Christianity just don't work well together. There are Christians who think science is antagonistic towards Christianity. There are scientists who think that Christianity is just backwards and uh, wrong and just uh, couldn't entirely be plausible. And what I found as a Christian who is a scientist is that, they work very well together. And uh, so I just really want to help people see that that's this perceived tension or this popular narrative of there being conflict between the two really just doesn't pan out. And when you get in and do the hard work of understanding what Christianity has to say and the hard work of understanding what science has to say about this creation, that they really mutually benefit one another. Uh, And just to kind of tell people about that and
0: hopefully spread the gospel while we're doing it. Absolutely. And I love just the work that you guys do at reasons to believe. And I, th- I had, uh, Dr. Fuzz run on not too long ago talking about his humans 2.0 book. And whenever you guys come out with new stuff, I'm just so excited to read it and look into it because I think you guys do such a great job at, at using good, doing good science and then showing how mm-hmm. that points to the gospel and the truth of Christianity. Um, Now, you've written this book on uh, the beginning of the universe, confronting universe's origins, escaping the beginning. Um, I guess we can kind of jump in of, of why is this an issue that you felt needed to be tackled of looking at the beginning of the universe?
1: Well, there's a little bit of a historical reason. You know, I've worked at Reasons to Believe for coming up on 15 years now. And uh, one of the things that I've just talked a lot about is, you know, you got Big Bang Cosmology, it points towards a beginner uh, or, you know, a beginning to the universe, which has this implication of a beginner. And I've talked a lot of, or, you know, given if you probably line up which talks have I given most, something related to that topic is in a lot of talks that I give. Yeah. And I was at a conference uh, about a little over five years ago now where I was kind of talking about how science points to a beginning to the universe. And there was a fellow in the audience who challenged me and says, you know, I can give you theory models out there of the universe where there's no beginning, so how can you say all the evidence points towards a beginning? So we ended up having a dialogue about that. And what I recognized is that he was raising a challenge that needed to be addressed. And so it got me thinking of how would I address that challenge Um, of, you know, these quantum theories of gravity that don't require a beginning. And uh, it just kind of got me dig in a little bit about what has historically happened in the 20th century. What are the models that are out there now? And how, given where we are in 2020, how can I make a robust defense of the idea that there's a beginning? Because that seems to be what the Bible's saying. And so if I'm going to say the Bible and science work well together— they ought to say the same thing. And so that, that's really the genesis of the, the book is that conversation and my wrestlings with, how would I make a coherent argument for that given what we know about cosmology at this yeah, point?
0: Absolutely, and I think that's great. And I think hopefully that's one thing that I want to get across clearly in this show is that as Christians, hopefully we stand behind this idea of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that we can rest assured on. And so I kind of have three goals uh, to kind of prepare you for this next hour of what we're going to be talking about. The first one is, Uh, in understanding a big bang cosmology and hopefully seeing that the big bang is not anti-christian it's not it's not the enemy uh, but actually uh, works very well with christianity and that leading into point two of how the beginning of the universe points to a beginner and that we can use some of the best scientific discoveries uh, pointing to a beginning and then implying a beginner and then thirdly As Jeff just mentioned, there are other models out there. Big Bang Cosmology is not the only one, and other ones do point to an eternal universe. So we're going to be going over a survey of some of those other models, giving an introduction into those, and then discussing them and kind of refuting them. So hopefully if you are in evangelistic conversations and you are being ambassador and you're taking the message of Jesus into our culture and they bring up any of these objections against beginning of the universe, you can at least have some awareness of what they might be talking about. So that's our goal here as we start. So maybe a simple question for you, Jeff, as we get going of, uh, would you say that you believe in the big bang? I think the Big Bang is a very good
1: scientific description of our universe, and I think it very much aligns with the, the way the Bible describes the universe.
0: So yes, and to answer your question directly, yes. Okay, so I'm going to start off with an objection right from the get-go. Okay. Uh, I was speaking at a summer camp, a girl comes up to me and I just suggested that the Big Bang might be true and uh and that, you know, the universe maybe is old and she objected and said, "Look, Bible says clearly, God created all things in the beginning, you know, let there be light, there was light. Mm-hmm. He did this, it was it was instantaneous." The Big Bang cosmology seems to suggest that it maybe took not—it wasn't instantaneous. Maybe it took some time for light, planets, especially the earth and the sun to form. Um, how can we mm-hmm. understand that from a, from a biblical view that it seems like God created things instantaneously?
1: Well, I, I would say I, I don't know of too many Christians who actually hold that God created things instantaneously. I mean, even in the Genesis 1 creation account, you've got, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. You know, there were conditions on the earth. And then God— you know, in the way he's revealed it to us has sequentially gone through and uh create, or, you know made the day and the or the the light and the darkness and the day and the night and the the waters above and the waters below so there's this process that God is using now there is a obviously a pretty long standing discussion in the church of what's the time scale and all of that, and there are Christians who would say no, that's you know the best way to look at that is that those are twenty four hour days and that creation happened somewhere in the six to ten thousand year ago time range. But what I found is that as you look at what Christians have said, I mean, yeah, there there's a group of Christians who say that that's got to be that way, but there are Christians who hold Scripture in high regard, who are passionate about understanding what God has revealed through Scripture, <clears throat> um, how to interpret it well, uh, believe in inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, and they look and say, you know, th- no, those days are meant to be much longer periods of time. And whether that's a an analogical day or a day age or a framework view, there there's 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 basically Christians who said you know we can argue about what the length of the or the time scale is, but you can hold when you look at the the range of interpretations of scripture that hold scripture in high regard, uh, take it to be an errant that it's God's revealed word it has authority in everything that it says that uh, you know clearly that 24 hour day is in that in that in that camp but so are these things where the days are much longer and so. Uh, The way I would argue that is that the Bible is not definitive there, because all of these people agree on, you know, who is Jesus, and did he die, and was he raised, and who is God, and is he triune, all of these things that are essential to the Christian faith, all these people agree on, but they disagree on this area, and that to me says... The scripture isn't quite so clear there, and so let's, let's be willing to dig in and wrestle and make sure that whatever we do in interpreting scripture, we end up with a good theology of who God is.
0: Okay. Now, is it possible to hold to Big Bang cosmology and Young Earth creationism at the same time? In principle, yes, but in in practice, because Big Bang cosmology is a
1: description of how does the universe behave. And so there's there's a process to Big Bang cosmology. There's there's uh you know the original state or the the initial state, and then there's this expansion and cooling down and the formation of things. And in principle, that could happen at any sort of time scale. Um, where in practice you run into conflict is as that we go out and make measurements of how long has the Earth been here? How long have the stars been expanding? How long did it take for the galaxies to get as far apart because of the expansion of the universe? We find that the universe, uh, as as we envision it, is roughly 14 billion years old, and so that's where uh, you you run into a a, a contradiction between a 24-hour day, and what do we measure from what the science has, or from what do we measure of the universe when we go out and actually do the measurements?
0: Yeah. So then how would you kind of respond to someone that says, okay, uh, we're understanding science, which science is kind of our best guess, right? Science Mm -hmm. has been wrong in the past, right? We're we're doing our best, but we know we've made mistakes, and we definitely could be making mistakes again, Uh, and we're taking kind of science uh, and comparing that against Scripture, which is the infallible Word of God.
1: Well, what I would say is that we, we need to keep in mind two things, that we're studying God's revelation. Now, God has revealed himself in Scripture. I don't think any Christian disagrees with that. Yeah. Um, but God has also revealed himself in creation, and God's revelation will be consistent when we've properly interpreted it. And so, in Scripture, there are the words of Scripture, and we must go in and interpret and understand what those mean. Uh, and and we look for consistency in our interpretation of what Genesis says compared to what Matthew says, and what the prophets say, and what Revelation says. You know, so we're looking at the words of Scripture, developing an interpretation or a model, if you will, of what it's saying, and then asking: Is it consistent? Does it explain things well? Is it coherent? And does it give us a, an accurate picture of who God is? Does our interpretation match the truth? Hmm. Well, in science, we are doing the same thing. Now, it is a little bit different in that there are not words written out in creation, but we're going out and saying, okay, how fast are things moving? How does creation work? Is it reliable? Is it robust? Is our explanation over here, does it account for all the data? Does it match up in this area and this area? So the, the very process, by or the, the basic thought process behind how we interpret Scripture and how we interpret creation are remarkably similar, okay. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, Paul was uh, uh, commending the Bereans because they did just they didn't just take his word for it, but they actually went and searched. He's saying this. Does it match up with what we know of of Scripture saying? And yeah. so. So really, the reason why I say, you know, we've got to do this is that if God's revealed himself in Scripture and God's revealed himself in creation, those two revelations, because of who God is, those two revelations must agree. And if we find that they look like they disagree, that means we've misinterpreted one or the other of them. Yeah.
0: Occasionally, we misinterpret both. Yeah. Well, I think that's good to to point out that it's our interpretation of Scripture and our interpretation of nature, right? Right, And and that's what I always want to point out with students is that uh, nature is the infallible kind of creation of God. Uh, This is the objective truth, and Mm -hmm. the way that we understand it may be wrong, and Scripture is the objective word of God. And the way we understand Scripture is wrong. I know I've gotten my theology wrong, and it could be wrong in other places. Uh, And so we have to recognize that we have to interpret both of them uh, rather than just one and not the other. Now, you mentioned that— And and I would just say, if if I could add a comment to that, is that—
1: there, there is a kind of thought that, okay, we just read scripture and it's clear and self-obvious what it means. But the idea of we have to interpret scripture, in fact, scripture was not written in English. So the very fact that I'm reading a Bible means that something has been interpreted that allows me to interact with the revelation. And so, yeah. The this to me is what makes sense from a Christian perspective is that God's revealed Himself. That revelation is coherent, consistent, truthful in all ways. If we see a conflict, it means that we've misinterpreted, and we've we've misinterpreted the science in the past. But we've also misinterpreted the interpret or misinterpreted how we've what the words of Scripture mean in the past. Yep. And so they they serve as a good check on one another to get to the truth, which is. What God has revealed. God has revealed truth no matter how, how we go about finding
0: it. Yeah. And hopefully that's I mean, that's the goal and that's what we're both trying to do right. in, in our honest approach. We're not we're not setting scripture aside. We're not setting God aside or something and saying this is what science says, therefore it's it's golden and and you take mm-hmm. it. Uh, right. everyone's trying to figure out how did God do this? What is the best understanding and explanation of God's creation? And, uh, Hey, we could be wrong, but that's why we're trying to figure this out. And we're looking at the best evidence that there is. Now you right. did mention briefly that, uh, you know, the universe is, you know, plus or minus, you know, 14 billion, 13.7 or 13.8 billion years old. Um, and I think maybe, uh, people have different ideas of how we get this dating, whether it's, it's fossils and, and, and rock layers, and there's other different ways of getting this, but obviously from your perspective of astronomy, uh, how would you date? Is there a simple way that you can kind of explain of how you get that dating based on astronomy? Well, what's cool about astronomy is that we don't just have one way of dating it. We've got three or four different. Actually,
1: there's lots of different ways, but there are kind of three, three or four main ways of doing it. One of the ways we do it is that there are certain stars out there that they go through a certain life cycle. And then at some point in time, once they get done with that life cycle, they just end up as this hunk of star. And it and it, and there's no more energy being generated, and it's just cooling off. Now, I can tell you this. If I go in and I find an ice cube on the counter uh, or or hanging in the air, and I, 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 I know what its original size was, I can tell you exactly how long it's been there because things cool off at very... Predictable, measurable, reliable rates, and so we can go out and look at these. Per, this particular class of stars, and we know uh, pretty good what their initial temperature was. We certainly have high end bounds on it, and so all we can do is just say, "All right, we know it's. We know they started at this temperature. We know they're ending at this temperature, and we can map out. You know, we can find older and older ones, and eventually you, you find the oldest ones. Um, <clears throat> those are the ones that." Have that temperature or you know, that are the coolest, and that allows you to put an age on the galaxy, and that co- that number comes out right around 13 billion years for the galaxy, and you add how long it takes the stars to form, and you get about 14 billion years for the universe. So that's one way. It's just measuring effectively these big hot embers that are just cooling down over time. Okay. Um, that so that so that's one way, and again, it gives right about 14 billion years. Now there's another way where we can go and uh, look at the amount of uh, chemical elements, because stars produce certain chemical elements. They take hydrogen and helium and make all the heavier elements. Um, some of those heavier elements decay. And so we can actually figure out how many stars there are, and we know how what types of stars produce what kinds of elements, and we know how quickly these elements decay. And so we can just ask the question, how old are things given the measurements of the elements we find. And so we can find old stars and make measurements of what the elements, the distribution of elements were. We can find newer stars and we can put, try to put together a coherent picture that says, all right, this is how this is how the elements were produced. And that technique also gives you a number right around 14 billion years. Okay. And we can go out and we can also measure, uh, we, all the galaxies are moving away from us. And so we can measure how fast are the galaxies moving away from us. And given how fast they're moving away from us, we can ask the question, were they ever all located with us? And ask, how, what, what was that time span? And that also gives right about 14 billion years. And so I've got three different techniques that require three different kinds of physics at play. So, So what happens with the expansion doesn't affect how quickly these stars cool. What happens with the expansion really doesn't affect the distribution of the elements. What happens with these stars doesn't really affect that much. And so I've got three different techniques of measuring the age of the universe, and they all give me 14 billion years. That gives me quite a bit of confidence that we've got the right age.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important to point out is that I often hear people say, well, you know, people get an old universe and billions of years just because they look at some dirt and then they look at carbon dating or something and then they think it's old. And and I, I mean, even, and not all young earthers are saying that, but I hear that from people. And right. and I think it's important to point out whether you're young or old earth, uh, there's at least more to consider here. There's at least mm-hmm. more thought that goes into it. And you mentioned it's, it's three different tests using three different types of physics. And that's only from astronomy. That doesn't right. take in the other types of dating when it comes to biological dating or, uh, or you know, uh, uh, um, uh, fossils and 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 ground mm-hmm. structures and all that kind of stuff. And so, I think it's important to just, to kind of consider just the amount of information there is and have that honest approach. Uh, if we are, whatever position it is that we're going to hold. Now, what would you... I, I, no, I, oh, yeah, I think that's it. really important. And that, that's,
1: uh, I would just kind of echo your sentiment there is like, that's one thing I have tried to do with people. You know, I, I, I disagree with people who are young earth creationists. And what I do is I try and say, what is their best argument? What are they actually yeah. saying? And I and I deal with that argument rather than set up some argument that I think, oh, that just can't be. And I can re- re- reject it out of hand. So what's the best argument? And how do I deal with that in a coherent, robust, reliable fashion. Yeah,
0: and we don't want to straw man them. In fact, what, you know, oftentimes people say is you want to steel man them, find the best argument, make it as strong right. as you possibly can. And if you can knock that over, then you got something to say, something going for you. Right. So some responses to this, uh, what would you say to someone who says, okay, the the starlight uh, has the appearance of age, but it's not actually age, right? Just like uh, Adam was maybe created to look old, but he wasn't old. Uh, the wine that Jesus, the, when Jesus turned water into wine, mm-hmm. it tasted like aged wine, but it, actually was new wine uh, what if starlight is the same thing where it just has this appearance of age but it's not actually old how would you respond to that uh, um, objection
1: you know th- th- there's there's some validity I could see you know okay God's created things and he puts the starlight in transit so we can see it you know that uh, that you know if we could, if the universe was 10,000 years old and star would starlight would normally take you know three billion years to get from somewhere to here I could see where God might just put it in transit so that we can see what's out there. The problem with that is this. So I I am an uh, astrophysicist by trade, and my graduate work was on an object called Markarian 421. And it's just this galaxy that's about 400 million light years away from us. Now, in in that's in this scenario we've posited, the the light coming from Markarian 421 was created in transit, so we're seeing it, so that we know that that object's out there. Except that when I was in graduate school in the early 1990s or mid 1990s. As we were monitoring this object in gamma rays, we saw the intensity of gamma rays increase by a factor of 30 or increase by this very large factor and drop down in about 30 minutes. Now, that change in light is evidence of an event that happened. So, you know, for example, we're looking at the sun. If the moon passes in front, we see a solar eclipse. The change in light is a record of an event that happened. So as I'm looking out at this distant object, I'm seeing the record of an event that happened, except that if the light was created in transit, in order for me to see that, that light couldn't have traveled any more than about 10,000 light years from about 10,000 light years away. So it's a record of an event that never happened. Yeah. So if you're going to draw the parallel to, ooh, Adam was created mature, did he have scars on his body from... Injuries that never happened. Did he have memories in his mind of events that never happened? If that's the analogy we want to make, now we have to question, is God being deceptive? Or is, you know, I mean, if if we can't, if we're going to push it that way, you end up in this very, if you're not careful, you end up in this very bad theology where God's creating records of events that never happened. You know, it's kind of akin to that God put all the fossils in the ground to confuse people so they don't understand who I am, you know, I'm being a little snarky there, but you see where that kind of, that line of reasoning would lead you to is that God's put all these, the record of events that never happened into creation. And I think that's problematic for given who I know who God
0: is. Yeah. So another thing that you mentioned here on, on, on knowing how old things are is, is, If the universe is expanding, was there ever a time where we were together? And then you can kind of measure that distance and the rate of expansion. How do you know that we're actually together at one point? What if we didn't just start further apart? Or how do you know that the rate of expansion hasn't changed? Is it possible that the speed of light has changed over time? And so what appears to be further away Mm -hmm. uh, is actually not as far as we often think.
1: Well, I mean, I I could go through each of those individually, but the the short answer is we can make measurements that show those aren't the case. So I can find measurements of distant starlight, which there are transitions we can measure that depend on the speed of light. And we find that to our best measurements in stars, galaxies that are billions of light years away from us, the speed of light is the same. Maybe uh, the most it could possibly have changed was about one part in 100,000. And so that's not going to solve the problem of how does distant starlight get here. We can look at, you know, you ask the question, were they all the same? Well, uh, when you look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, it's the same temperature everywhere. Hmm. Well, the way it gets to be the same temperature everywhere is that it was all, something had to have heated it to the same temperature. And the best way to do that is to have it all to where things can come to the same temperature in the same region. Uh, You know, so you end up with... There are measurements we can make of the universe out there that that support these ideas rather. I mean, if I said, OK, I just I'm going to say that everything was together and, or everything was actually pretty close. And then I go out and make measurements and find out that they don't accord to that. Then I'm just holding on to this belief willy nilly. But the, the fact of the matter is, for everything that you mentioned there, there's some measurement or some series of measurements we've made that validates that that idea was correct. Uh, You know, for example, you talked about the expansion rate. Well, I'm not just going and looking at the expansion rate at one point in time. As I look at galaxies that are further away and that are closer together, I'm measuring what the expansion rate was in the past. Hmm. So I'm actually getting a history of the expansion, not just one expansion rate and trying to extrapolate. So this is what scientists are about doing, saying, hey, I've got this assumption. Is there a way I can test it and make sure it's a good assumption? Yeah. And so when you do all that, you really do get that, you're hard pressed to look at the universe and say it's much much younger than about 14 billion years
0: old. Absolutely. So, uh, kind of last kind of question on this is, if you um, if you're going to grant big bang cosmology, and as you mentioned at the beginning, that there's kind of this process that things go through as as galaxies spread and as planets heat and cool and all that kind of stuff. Uh, how much fine tuning is required in order to get a habitable habitable planet like Earth in that system? I mean, would you would you say that And what I'm assuming you're going to say is uh, you still need God directing that. It's not like you can just have this initial expansion and then out of pure naturalistic random combinations, you get this habitable planet like Earth.
1: It really does seem like a lot of things need to be put together a certain way for that to occur. I mean, even in the expansion rate of the universe, if it expands too rapidly, stars don't form. If it expands too slowly everything collapses into black holes. So the expansion rate of the universe needs to be a certain rate or else things won't cluster up and make stars and planets. Well, if you don't have stars and planets, we're not going to be here to talk about it. Well, to make planets, you need something more than hydrogen and helium. So there needs to be enough generations of stars to produce the heavier elements. Anything, you know, uh, astronomers can consider everything that's not hydrogen and helium heavy. But to make all of the carbon and the nitrogen and the oxygen and the fluorine and the gold and uranium and thorium and lead to all of those, there needs to be certain kinds of uh, enough time for that to happen. And and that means that enough stars have to form. And that means you got to have supernova, which dump the stuff back in so that new stars can incorporate it. So you see fine-tuning there or or things need to be put together a certain way. So you see it in the laws of physics, even the fabric of space-time. If we had more or less than three spatial dimensions, that would basically create a universe where life would be impossible. Um, so, you know, you see that there. You see that in, t- in the types of planet. you got to have a certain size planet that's a certain distance from a sun. Uh, even once you get that, the things that have happened on Earth, there's a, this incredible diversity of minerals on Earth that just simply happen because, or not simply happen, they happen because of how robustly or how abundantly Earth hosts life, you know, and so when you put all those things together, this idea that things have been fashioned or put together for life to work here on Earth really does arise, you know, the way I would say it is that given all that we see, had God not intervened to make Earth habitable, we wouldn't be here to talk about it, and so uh, we do see evidence of God being a creator, designer, engineer, artist, just when looking at Earth itself. But then, when we look out at the universe, that
0: that evidence pointing towards that is even even great, even greatly magnified. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, hopefully what I wanted to cover in this first part and we've taken about half of our time to do it is, and we've also kind of pointed at the beginning is, is hopefully Mm -hmm. big bang cosmology is not anti-God. It's not the enemy. Uh, it still is requiring this fine tuning. You know, I like to think of it, I guess, is it's kind of like a a factory, uh, that is able to, you know, an assembly line that can build a car. It's like, well, that doesn't just come about by natural processes. You still need, you know, a ton of fine tuning and able to design everything to function to get the output Mm -hmm. necessary. Uh, Uh, And hopefully, at least no matter what the person's view is watching, uh, something to think about as far as the age of the earth and and the ways Uh that we get some of this information. So what we can all agree on, as far as the Christian perspective, is that there's a beginning. And so in your book, you're you're answering this question, Escaping the Beginning. Uh, What would science and scripture mean uh, uh, when we refer to the beginning?
1: Well, I mean, multiple places you talk or you read throughout scripture, you know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you know, John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of God being outside creation and bringing it into existence pervades scripture. I mean, that's that's the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that out of nothing, that God didn't just fashion stuff that was already there, he is ultimately the source of all that we have. And that, you know, there's this, uh, you commensurate with that in in the scriptural description is this idea of a beginning. That really does seem to be the way scripture talks about creation. And so scientifically in the last 150 years or so, we've actually been able to address that from a scientific perspective. And there are some pretty powerful ideas out there that point to even scientifically that there's a beginning. you know, we, you know, the Big Bang. There, there's kind of two terms given to that. One is just the description of the universe as it evolves from its original hot, dense state. But there is even this connotation that if you push things far enough back, there's a breakdown in the laws of physics, and you can't describe things using physics. That something beyond has to bring it in, and so that's consistent with that idea of God being outside of creation and bringing creation into existence. And so. They really do kind of go hand in hand with one another. It's, the Bible talks about a beginning, and science
0: is a very reasonable idea to have a beginning as well. And how long has science presented this idea that our universe had a beginning? Is this relatively new? I think you just mentioned briefly about 50 years or so. Uh, what was the idea in science before that? Well,
1: science has not had a uniform voice on this. There are times where the idea of a beginning seems more powerfully supported. There are times where scientists have brought up, well, we've got these models that don't require a beginning. Even if you just stick to one period of time, there are some scientists who say, yeah, there's a beginning, and others who say, no, there isn't. And so to kind of say science has said that is a little bit of an overstatement. But I do think one of the kind of powerful T- or powerful events that happened, or developments, discoveries, if you will, that happened, was as people were looking at the universe, they recognized that it's expanding. Um, they recognized that general relativity governs the dynamics of the universe, that as it's expanding, it's cooling down, uh, that the entropy is increasing, and so uh, the, the amount of disorder in the universe is increasing, if you will. And <clears throat> the thought was, okay, so if the universe is expanding and it's growing colder, um, does that nece- of necessity point towards there being a beginning? And so uh, in the kind of 60s and 70s, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose were working on working on that idea, but many other people were as well. And what they discovered was uh, this theorem. It's called a singularity theorem, if you will, or is the, is the term for it. And, it. and it basically says this, that if general relativity describes the dynamics of the universe, and if the universe has energy that behaves a certain way, and both of those were very reasonable assumptions that have a lot of data pointing towards them, that if those two things were true, and there were there were two other conditions that are a little bit more technical, but if general relativity describes the universe, and if energy behaves a certain way, then as you run time backwards, eventually you run into singular, a singularity where the laws of physics break down, and there's a beginning. You know, And so I think that's, it's certainly, whether it, proves a beginning is really not the important thing that when we looked at our best description of the universe general relativity energy behaving a certain way and we we said okay what are the implications of that the implications were the universe had a beginning i think that's a pretty powerful thing that scientists came to not really looking for it and in some sense trying to avoid
0: if you will yeah so you used the term singularity a few times there what exactly do you mean by the singularity
1: Well, so in general, it's just a place where the laws of physics break down for some reason. So, you know, for example, you could talk about I've got two particles and I can talk about a density as long as the particles are here. But if the particles end up being in exactly the same place, now I've got a measurable amount of mass, but no volume. And so my density becomes infinite. That would be a singularity. And so... In, uh, in this theorem that Hawking and Penrose developed, what they did is they looked at the trajectories of particles in space-time and found that as you ran it backwards, you inevitably ran into a singularity where you got these infinities where the laws of physics broke down and could no longer describe the universe.
0: So I've, he- I've heard the objection from atheists that say uh, if the laws of physics are breaking down, then we should be left saying we don't know what happened because the laws of physics break down. You can't do any more measurements and that Christians are using God of the gaps to try to claim that we know what was happening when physics has virtually broken down. So how do we continue to use physics to understand what happened before the Big Bang if the laws of physics are broken down at that point?
1: Well, there's actually some legitimacy to that objection. And that's, you know, if you notice there, I didn't say it, did, it didn't say this proves that there's a beginning. Um, because as a scientist, there, there is one thing I have learned is that where your, lo- where, where your model breaks down, you get infinities or whatever, that means you need a better model. You know and and uh, you know just specifically one of the reasons why I think the the singularity theorems developed by Hawking and Penrose are powerful but they're not proof that the universe has a beginning because two things. One is that there were two conditions that general relativity describes the dynamics of the universe. Well, as we're trying to get at this quantum theory of gravity which would incorporate gravity and uh the electromagnetic and strong and weak nuclear interactions. General relativity is a classical theory. All these other, the other three forces have, or interactions have a quantum description. And so in order to unify those, we need a quantum description of gravity. That means that general relativity, while a very good approximation, is not the ultimate theory. So right where you need general relativity to prove a beginning is the place where scientists would expect it to break down. The other part is, you know, we get, or, you know, so you also, as you're running through and you get infinities, that's a sign, okay, we need a better theory. Well, that corresponds to the idea that we think general relativity is an an approximation, not the ultimate theory. But the other thing is, energy had to behave a certain way. You know, and uh, we may get into discussion of inflation and how inflation modifies the universe. But inflation, which has a lot of evidence pointing towards it, the way inflation behaves, it violates that energy condition. So the, Hawking, the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorems are powerful, but I can tell you this, the two conditions that say, do they apply to our universe in the earliest moments of the universe, I would say inflation and general relativity being unified with the other laws say they're pro- those two conditions probably aren't met. And so they don't prove there's a beginning. But again, I thought it was interesting that as scientists were trying to figure out, is there a beginning or not? Our best
0: models at the time said, yeah, there really is a beginning okay so with these kind of issues with physics breaking down uh and needing new models would this be the reason why scientists even with what seems to be very good evidence and reason to believe the universe had a beginning are still looking for eternal universe theories why are they yeah, still looking you know, for well this?
1: and partially yeah because you know hawking and penrose said given given general relativity and energy that behaves this certain way you end up with a beginning Well, if you say, okay, well, so now let's actually, let's, as a scientist, how would I test that? Well, the first thing I would have to do is I would need to develop a model where those conditions were not met. So that's part of just good scientific work is saying, okay, these, if these conditions are true, I know what the outcome is going to be. So let's build up, let's build an alternative model so that I can test and see which one describes the universe. What are the measurements that would allow me to distinguish between that? Um, You know, and inflation is one of those that violates those conditions. And so we've got evidence pointing towards inflation. And so that would say, all right, the singularity theorems of Hawking and Penrose are powerful, but they're not the final answer to things. And so now we're talking about, well, maybe inflation happens. And inflation has got this cool feature that once it starts, it seems to continue forever. Uh, The people who are developing inflation realize that and said, well, maybe it has been going on forever. And so they started studying that and asked the question, has inflation been happening forever? And it turns out there's another singularity theorem that shows on very general principles that if, on average, a space-time is expanding, that means that an, even inflation had a beginning. Yeah. But you'll, you'll notice there, there was a if space-times behave this way, so people are going to say, well, okay, how can I develop a space-time that doesn't behave that way Yeah. so that I can test which of these models is correct?
0: yeah so how then would you kind of how much would you say that the beginning of the universe and even big May cosmology or whatever uh may be pointing or inferring to a beginner kind of what theological significance can we draw from the the current scientific models that are out there well
1: I- I would say there are a lot of models that are well maybe maybe quantum gravity looks this way and and those are interesting models but they don't have the theoretical and experimental support that the uh, the the theorem that says inflation has a beginning or even the one that says that uh that the universe has a singularity those those are those are better experimentally tested if you will mm-hmm And so um, the way one of the things I've noticed is that when you look back through the history of the 20th century, when Einstein first proposed general relativity, one of the bizarre features of that is that instead of space and time being these absolute entities that everything happens in, space and time are dynamic. They can stretch and expand. They can begin and quit. And Einstein actually introduced his cosmological constant to produce an eternal universe, a static universe, because static universes would be eternal. Anything that was expanding or contracting either had a beginning or an end to it. And so the introduction of general relativity introduced this idea of a beginning or an end. Well, you measure the expansion of the universe in the late 1920s, that points towards a beginning. And so now scientists have said, well, what what ways could we get around the beginning? Well, maybe we could have expanding or oscillating universes. Well, there were some problems with those models, and so those kind of fell from disfavor. Um, some said, well, maybe we could have expanding universes where new matter was being continually created. You think, well, how can that violates, you know, energy conservation? How could you do that? Well. From a, from a measurement standpoint, there were only so much, so strong a limits we could put on that. So this was a good thing to test. And it turns out these steady state models, no, they didn't actually match up with the universe as well. So we're back to these Big Bang type models that seem to have a beginning. And so maybe maybe you can have things rotating or asymmetric or that gets around a beginning. And that's why those singularity theorems of Hawking and Penrose were so important is it says that if general relativity is a final word, then there's a beginning to the universe, huh. and now we say, okay, general relativity isn't the final word. We got inflation. Well, that maybe that could have been eternal, but no, that even has a beginning. And now, so we're asked here with this quantum gravity, which I don't know the answer to, and we won't know for, you know, it could be it could be fifty years. Uh, you know, it's just really difficult to test what quantum theory of gravity is correct, mm. whether we even have the right one yet. But what I see is this history of. Model comes along, says there's a beginning. So scientists say, well, here, I can get around the beginning this way. And eventually measurements show, no, that doesn't work. And, oh, maybe we can get around a beginning this way. No, that doesn't work. Maybe we can get around a beginning this way. No, that doesn't work. And so in, in some sense, I'm being asked, you know, okay, maybe this quantum gravity will be the one that gets around the beginning. But I see this history of the universe seems to keep pushing us back towards the beginning. Yeah. And so I think that's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful notion.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned some of those theories here quickly. Uh, So I want to go into a little bit more depth. One of them that you mentioned is a steady state theory, which uh, is acknowledging the expansion of the universe, but tries to find Mm -hmm. a way around the beginning, uh, even with an expanding theory. So can you kind of briefly kind of uh, describe the steady state theory? Uh, What are some maybe some benefits of it? And then kind of what are the flaws and why that theory in your, you know, has failed uh, in many ways? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so so the in, in the 40s and 50s, where that model was popular, what was tr- what was known is that the universe was expanding. The general relativity matched our matched the predictions. It was a successful theory. Um, that uh, you know, and so so now the question was: if things are expanding, um, you have a beginning, unless because as things expand, things will move further apart. And so the fact that we still see stuff kind of close together says that things haven't been expanding forever unless new matter is being created. And then, so as things expand, you've just got new matter being created. And and what that will mean is that whether we look really far away or really close, things are going to look the same because that's the way the steady state works. And it turns out we can look and find that as we look further away, there are a much larger number of radio sources than there are closer together or close to us. And that tells us that the steady state model is incorrect. So when you look far away in the universe, it looks very different than when you look close by in the universe. That says the steady state model is incorrect.
0: Okay. So um, what about then as moving into uh, the oscillating theory that we, can you maybe explain what that is and then uh, some reasons for and against that one?
1: Yeah. And again, that's a recognition that our universe is expanding. But it's saying, need it expand forever into the future. Might there be enough matter that the the, the universe expands and eventually collapses back on itself and then bounces? So it's kind of like a, you know, you're just sitting there bouncing the ball off the ground. It, 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 it goes down and up and down and up. So it expands and contracts. It expands and contracts. And the original idea was that each time it would expand out to the same size, contract, expand out to the same size. And that, again, is kind of steady state. It could just have been that way forever. What they recognize as they were analyzing is that with each expansion, the amount of entropy increases, which means that each expansion is going to get larger. Well, so now if you graph over time, you know, with each expansion, how large is it? You start small, but it gets, you know, you kind of got, it's going to get larger and larger. And so now if you run that backwards again, instead of being, this could just go on forever into the past, you end up pointing back towards the beginning as well. And so it wasn't so much that the oscillating model went was shown to be incorrect. It's shown that it didn't avoid a it didn't avoid a beginning, at least the way it was put to or it, the way it was uh, stated in the early you know nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties.
0: Yeah. So the way that I've understood oscillating model, and at least the problems with it, and then maybe I'm backwards in my thinking, is that if you uh, if if with each oscillation right with each expansion and contraction you're losing energy because you know the laws of thermodynamics say that energy is neither created nor destroyed right and that we're running mm-hmm. out of usable energy uh i i guess the way that i've heard it explained is like a basketball right if you drop a basketball uh it'll bounce but with each bounce the bounces get smaller and smaller and smaller until finally the basketball is laying on the ground and and it's stopped bouncing it's just sitting there uh right is it like that but reverse because it says that you, you're saying that with each uh each subsequent expansion, it actually, the expansion grows bigger and bigger as it goes?
1: Yeah, so, so the difference there is that with a basketball, you're actually extracting energy with each bounce. You hear it. Mm-hmm. That means energy has been dissipated as sound as opposed to going back into the b- bouncing of the ball. So that's that's the difference here. In the, in the universe, it still has the same amount of energy, but just the energy usable to cause the collapse is dis- decreasing. And yeah. so that's why the the expansion gets bigger each time. Got it. So it's it's you and you made the distinction. It's not that energy any energy is being lost from the universe. It's the amount of usable energy is being lost, which means that the universe is going to get larger each time because there's less available energy to cause it to collapse.
0: Got it. So I, almost backwards, I guess, of what I was thinking of starting out big and getting smaller and smaller. Just the opposite, and energy right. and energy keeping us from collapsing back in on ourselves now have, uh, with this theory, is there any reason that they have to believe that there's a periods of contraction or is that simply just to get around a beginning? I we've only experienced and seen expansion of the universe. Is that correct? That is correct.
1: Uh, but you know, so is there any evidence of contraction? No. Uh, but you're also the expansion phase goes on for billions of years. So, you know, the idea that we could measure that would be a little ludicrous because we're okay. in the expanding phase. That's what we're going to measure now. The question is: Is it reasonable to postulate a an a, a contraction phase? And it's it's reasonable. But the but then the question becomes: How would you test that? Hmm. And especially now, most of the there are cyclic models. You know, instead of being os- oscillating, they're cyclic models where things expand and there's contraction of some sort, and then there's expansion. These cyclic models are very difficult to test because they basically look like Big Bang models, except way out at the extremes where we don't have any way of testing right now because our our experiments aren't good enough, our energies aren't high enough, uh, you know, to get actual experimental or observational results. That's where the differences are. And so, how would you, you know, it's it's just difficult to tell the distinction between all of those cyclic models, all of those eternal models. Also look from a measurement perspective right now, they look identical to the best Big Bang type models, which have a beginning
0: to them. Got it. So moving along, Dan, you've written a book, Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? Uh, and I think maybe, you know, some, some people want to say, we've been watching too many Marvel movies. We've seen too much Doctor Strange with all these multiverses, and that we think that this is possible. Uh, what would you say is, is there any good reason to believe in some sort of multiverse theory? And does that get, away, get us away from believing in a beginning of the universe?
1: So the the answer I would give to your first question
0: is, you know,
1: we've mentioned inflation and I'll just say, you know, inflation, we look at the cosmic microwave background radiation and we find it to be extremely uniform. But the only way to get it uniform or the best way to get it uniform is if there's some sort of hyper fast expansion in the earliest moments of the universe. And so we've got this idea of inflation and inflation produces certain signatures in the cosmic microwave background radiation ripples that we've seen. It produces a number of things that scientists have a lot of evidence pointing towards that. It's not conclusive in that it's got to be inflation, but it's certainly the most popular model that matches all the observations that are out there. So inflation is something that takes something that's it's going to be very small in size and it's going to grow up very rapidly. Now, all that background to say this, this is the statement, that if inflation happened, our universe is far larger than what we can see. So if you take the most distant thing we could possibly see right now, inflation says that there's a whole lot more stuff out there that we can't see. So if inflation happened, We live in a level one multiverse, that multiverse where there's just more stuff out there that we can't measure. Now, that's not real. I don't find that to be a particularly controversial idea that, you know, there's a limit to how far out we can see. There's just more stuff that we can't see. But all of it's going to largely look like our universe. You know, if we were to instantaneously be transported out there, it'd look statistically just like what we see from from Earth right here. Now, that's not the interesting part because the way inflation actually produces our universe is there's this stuff that's expanding very rapidly. It decays and this bubble where it's decayed kind of grows over time and our universe is inside one of those bubbles. So if inflation happened, the universe is far larger than what we can see. That's a level one multiverse. If our mechanisms to explain inflation are correct, we live where there are a whole lot of other bubbles as well we live in a multiverse. So the mecha- the the way inflation works and the mechanisms that all explain inflation all produce a multiverse. So that's why I think a multiverse is actually a good idea. Now, there's a question of does it get around the fine tuning in the beginning? That's a whole separate question because even our uh, you know again if if things expand on average, which inflation would do, then there's a beginning to inflation. So You know the 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 existence of inflation or a multiverse doesn't mean that that's in violation of what's or you know it's that it's in conflict with scripture because I think inflation, even with an inflationary multiverse, you still have a beginning, and your fine tuning or design argument changes, but I still think you have design and even in even in a
0: multiverse. Okay, now um, are there other? I guess kind of jump over. Are there other? Theories, eternal universe theories. That as people are going out having conversations, maybe with more scientifically minded people, and and hopefully this isn't over too many people's heads. I think this is a great thing about the book that you've written, uh, "Escaping the Beginning." Is there are some parts that definitely stretch me. I was reading some, and I looked at my wife, and I go, "I don't know what that's talking about." But for <laughs> the most part, it was very readable, very understandable in a way that I can go, "Okay." That makes sense. There's a few graphics that really put things clearly and I go, okay, that that totally makes sense. And maybe I was explaining something wrong and now I have a better understanding. Are there any other theories that as people go out and as they're sharing their faith and as they're trying to point to God being the creator of our universe and and being that beginning other theories that they might run into uh, that the universe is eternal?
1: Well, you know, I, I that's a good question, and that's kind of what I hope to address in the book. Is rather than say, okay, there's this one and this one and this one and this one and this one, that to kind of look look at it in classes of models. You know, that there are. Uh, cyclical models, and there are different kinds of cyclical models. You have these, uh, you know, membrane, I'll just use some terminology here, but the, you know, these membrane models where these membranes are kind of bouncing, oscillating and hitting back and forth. And every time they hit, they create a new multiverse or new universe, if you will. Um, There are cyclical models where universe expands out and it just eventually becomes so dilute and all the particles disappear and then that for some reason causes a new big bang if you will or a new period of expansion and so there are different kinds of cyclical models out there Um, and I would love to say well if you know this thing this is how you deal with all of them it's like no you really got to kind of understand each one because certain ones of them have different problems because for that for that one where it just expands and all the particles decay that means that electrons have to decay. Well, as far as we know, electrons are stable, stable uh, particles and will never decay. So if that's the case, that rules out that class of model, but we don't know that for sure. So this is where kind of a lot of that scientific uncertainty plays in. So that's kind of one class of these cyclical models. There's another class which are models that largely say, yes, inflationary big bang is correct, But as we run time backwards, we get these quantum gravity models where there's a maximum compressibility. And if we kind of go through the laws of physics don't break down and we can talk about the other side where, uh, you know, things are, uh, you know, if we go backwards in time, things are expanding. So effectively what you have is this uh, infinite contraction that bounces through this point and goes out that, that produces our universe. And so you know, again, and and how that plays out is different in each model. Some of them, the arrow of time reverses at that bounce. Some of them, just as you bounce through that quantum gravity era, everything's wiped out. You know, and so even from a, you know, let's just say that's correct. From a phenomenological perspective, that looks a lot like a beginning. You know, and so in every one of those, you kind of have to wrestle with, okay, what's this model actually saying? And what is Christianity really saying? Is there genuinely a conflict? Or would that agree with what Christianity has to say? Yeah. And so it's kind of this fun arena where you can go in and actually, okay, so when someone comes up with a challenge, my first question is, okay, so what's the nature of what you're saying? Are you saying this is, so in this model, is this, do you have a reversal of time there? Yeah, or no. Uh, Okay, so so just kind of learning and understanding what it is. And the more I've done that, the more I'm able to, Say, okay, here's what's kind of going on in this class of models.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great. And that's what my encouragement often is to students is uh, the more you get into these conversations, then the easier it is to remember the information, right? It's You, you learn mm-hmm. stuff best often by teaching it, by regurgitating it, and getting it out there. And so hopefully, you know, being able to refer back to this book, Escaping the Beginning, uh, referring to the reasons of, uh, or the resources of Reasons to Believe at Reasons.org, and, and Kind of tuning up on those those issues as people raise objections you go oh i don't remember how to respond to that now what would you say though to the person who goes i, I mean i guess they wouldn't still be watching uh 50, 54 minutes into our interview <laughs> if they're still watching they care about this but what about the person who goes why does this even matter who cares uh if there's a beginning or not what would you say why this matters so much
1: well th- there's two reasons one is that this is one of the popular ideas out there of how science is showing that Christianity is not doesn't doesn't align with uh, the way the universe works that science is showing Christianity to be wrong and so um, it's one of those places where it's fun it's a fun scientific discussion but it's also a fun theological discussion because uh, you know I mean if they've heard of Lawrence Krauss or Stephen Hawking, which they probably have, Stephen Hawking was advocating an eternal universe or a model where the universe had a beginning, but no God that created it. You know, and so it's like, okay, so somebody comes up and it brings that up and says, oh, you know, Stephen Hawking says we don't need God because of this, that. Either you have a resource where you can go and say, you know what? I haven't thought about that. Let me go investigate more. Or you've read about it. So you say, you know, here here are some ideas I've got about that where you can start engaging. Um, or you just have to leave the discussion and not, not be—you you no longer have any influence because you're not able to deal with that person's challenge. Um, you know, so, so there's part of it, which is the more I've done it, the more, I'm, the more I've strengthened my faith. I've seen these places that look like they're challenges, and I've just wrestled through enough of them to see, you know what? Every time I've wrestled with something that looks like a challenge, Christianity handles it very robustly. Okay, But then I'm also in a scenario where if someone comes up and challenges me, I can now engage in a discussion with them. And hopefully, not so much that I convince them my science is right or whatever. It's like, how do we have a discussion about who God is and how we're going to relate to him? Because that's
0: really what's important. Absolutely. And and that's, again, I I feel like I end every interview with with the Reasons to Believe scholar uh, um, with this point of, you know, how do then we point this back to the goodness of God? the the creation mm-hmm. of God, the the person of Jesus Christ, and and I'm just curious of in your scientific you know in the work that you do in the the books that you've written, uh, how often have you seen people be changed by giving scientific evidences? Obviously, it's a gospel that ultimately leads to salvation. But is this a you know I think often people it's like well arguing and proving the beginning, what's that going to do? They still need Jesus. Or have you seen this actually open doors? For deeper conversations.
1: I've definitely seen it open doors for deeper conversations. And and I I fully agree that there's not I'm not arguing and eventually going to convince somebody to be a Christian because my arguments are so good. That's just not the way Christianity works. Christianity or you know, somebody's saved because God does a work in their heart and they respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But what I have seen is that God often uses the rational arguments and the ability to make a defense and the care and being able to engage in a conversation and care what somebody's saying, he uses those as some of the tools to engage and connect with people. And there are, I'm I'm one of them where if something doesn't sort of make sense, it's really hard to engage with it. And so maybe it's not that I'm arguing you into the kingdom, but maybe by having a discussion, I can clear up what Christianity actually has to say or maybe help you see that maybe this isn't a, a conflict between science and Christianity. That You don't have to just chuck your science to become a Christian. Clear up some misconfusion or articulate something in a way or something where you just goes, oh, that kind of makes sense. And now there's one more barrier that's removed that allows that person to engage with the gospel as it really is, instead of
0: some misconception that's getting in the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Jeff Zwerring, thank you so much uh, for taking this time and hopefully not confusing those watching too much, but making things clear and understandable in a way that we can look at God as the creator, of the beginning of the universe. Uh, where can they go to get more information on you, the work that you do and all uh, that is happening at Reasons to Believe?
1: So the, the best place is go to reasons.org. That, you get access to all our resources. Uh, there's books, there's podcasts, there's uh, blogs, there's uh, videos, all sorts of things there. Um, I would also encourage you, know, each of the scholars has a uh, Twitter account and a Facebook account. Or uh, Follow them if you want to keep track of what's coming out. Uh, that gives you a way to communicate with them. I know I, uh, I generally try and respond to most people who communicate with me. Uh, so just reasons.org and the various resources you're going to find there will find ways to get resources as well as to connect with the scholars so that if you have questions.
0: And I love that. And I want to encourage them to, to, to connect on Twitter and those different resources because I know my students have asked me random questions, one that addressed in this book, like, how big is the universe? And I'm like, I have no idea. And so I messaged you, and you quickly kind of got out a response to me, and we're able to explain that. So appreciate it. Just encourage Everybody to go check it out. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Enjoyed, Ryan. Thanks for having me on today.
0: All right, and those who just watched, thank you so much. I hope that this was engaging and encouraging, and again, all as always, preparing you to be better ambassadors of Jesus Christ in our culture—a culture which focuses so much on science and and looking at that scientific evidence. And if we can use some of that to point to the person of Jesus, the truth of Christianity, I think that that is incredible, and it is a powerful way to evangelize. So, if you want to receive more training uh, on how to be better Christian ambassadors, respond to the objections in our culture, subscribe to this channel. A lot lot of interviews coming up every week in the month of march i have a new interview Uh, so definitely check those out they'll be posting up here on the youtube channel soon and then you can also follow on social media to get all the update things that are happening and be able to interact with some of these scholars and and ask more questions in an interview so with that we're going to sign off for this week have an awesome rest of your week have a blessed evening and day whenever it is that you're watching and see you guys later with another question of the day and another live stream bye guys
1: don't hesitate to follow your love will guide my way.